Excuse me. Well, good morning, everyone. Grace and peace to you. I want to clear my throat here. Things, um, things are not always as they seem. I'm sure you've heard that before. It comes from the ancient philosopher Plato, and he's right. Appearances, first glance, the way things look on the surface, can be deceiving. Have you ever been in a situation like that? One where you were so sure about what happened, or you were so sure about someone's motives, or so sure about the right thing to do, only to find out later that you were completely wrong, that you had absolutely misread the situation. I think we've all been in that place. Some new information came in, or maybe you overlooked an important detail, or maybe you were wrong about your own motives, and now the situation looks completely different. The landscape has transformed before you. Now, it highlights a problem that we have, and that is selective vision, that we see ultimately what we want to see, or worse still, that we see what others tell us to see. Uh, There's an experiment, you may have already been exposed to it, that teachers play on their students. It's a video of people passing a basketball around. There's a group in white and there's a group in black. And they're all intermingling and they're passing the ball back and forth. And your job is to count how many times the people in white pass the ball. So the video ends and you answer correctly 16 times. But while you were so focused on them passing the ball, while your vision narrowed to make sure you got that exact amount, What you didn't notice was the man in a gorilla suit who walked into the middle of the frame and started waving his hands and then walked away. Typically, about half of the people in this experiment failed to notice the man in the gorilla suit. Now, it's meant to illustrate the point that we take in very little of what's around us, that our vision is more selective and more narrow than we realize. Our attention, that is what we attend to, what we focus upon in our lives, shapes reality for us. It targets and it brings to the fore certain things, so it's very obvious to us, but it also dismisses other things into the background. Now, another tool that's used to make this point are those optical illusion pictures. For instance, this one. At first, I don't know about you, but what I see is an odd-looking duck. But the harder I look, the more I shift my attention, something else emerges. I see a rabbit. However, the thing is, can you see it? Okay, all right. Just making sure. However, the thing is, I cannot see both at once. When I'm focusing on the duck, the rabbit disappears. And likewise, when I'm focusing on the rabbit, the duck disappears. Again, the point is, our attention, 
not just what we look at, but how we look at it changes what we see. How we look at it changes what we see. And that's how it goes for all reality. You and I and every other person in this world are looking at the same thing, but we all don't see it in the same way. Now, where am I going with this? Well, essentially, the scriptures are telling us that we are looking at things in the wrong way. We're seeing ducks when we're supposed to be seeing rabbits. We're looking at things in the wrong way. Now, what does this have to do with worship? Well, quite a lot. We're coming to a turning point in our series on the church's worship. And thus far, we've been focused on the assembly itself, the basis for what we do here, the priesthood of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus, that he leads us into the heavenly tabernacle. We've talked about the purpose of our assembly, that we draw near to God, that we gather to encourage one another to love and good deeds and to witness before the world of the kingdom to come. And then last week we talked about the principles. There were six of them, and I won't name them all. The six of them that guide and shape our service. Now this week, and throughout the rest of this series, our aim is to show how this assembly, what we do here, relates to the rest of life. That is, how Sunday is connected to the rest of the week. Because oftentimes, and this is a problem, those two seem to be disconnected from one another. That sometimes our worship as a church and what we do here seems irrelevant to what happens at home or in the workplace and elsewhere. Right? We come here to learn about quote-unquote spiritual things, and then we go back to our quote-unquote material lives. And the two really have nothing to do with one another. Or we come here to escape the world, the world of politics and of business and of conflict. And our assembly is a retreat from the world, not an engagement with it. Or in some cases, we come here to be religious, to play the game and to pay the fee, and then we return home to our secular lives. Now, there are all sorts of ways of framing the problem, but again, it's a real one. The distance between Sunday and the rest of the week. And we can end up living these disintegrated and fragmented lives where the two don't meet or never fit together. So the remainder of this series is devoted to reconnecting our worship with our work. It's devoted to reconnecting Sunday with Monday through Saturday. Now, I'm going to talk about that generally this week, but in the weeks to come, we're going to look at a few of the things that we do on Sunday and how those basically set the tone and are essentially disciplines for the rest of our week. The hearing of the Word and the Lord's Supper, and then specifically the day of worship itself, the Lord's Day. So we'll talk about those and we'll wrap things up after that. So how do we intend to do this this morning? Again, by demonstrating 
that our worship gathering teaches us how to see the world and it teaches us how to see our lives from a different perspective. Again, our natural tendency is to see ducks, to look at reality and see one thing. And worship is training us to see rabbits. In other words, we naturally see things as our sinful hearts and our sinful culture wants us to see them. And worship is about seeing things the way God sees them. Not as they appear, but as they truly are. So it's the time and place where we come to recalibrate our vision. We come to refocus our attention so that we can see what the culture doesn't want us to see. And when that comes to our everyday lives, when we can have our vision retuned and then go back out into the world, it changes everything. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. But first, before we can get to worship directly, we need to consider the problem. And that is the malfunction in our hearts and minds that worship is designed to address. So up first is the problem. And in short, the problem is our vision. It's distorted. And we don't see things as we should see them. And that leads to all sorts of problems in our lives. So Paul tells us in his letter to the Romans, chapter 12, verse 2, he says as follows, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So the world that the apostle refers to here, do not be conformed to this world, is not the physical world, as in creation or nature. Instead, it's the social world of ideas, of values and institutions. It's the word aeon, and it's usually translated as age. So he says, do not be conformed to this age. And it refers to this present time or age, specifically the age until Jesus returns and the kingdom comes. So he says, don't be conformed to this time where there's still sin, where there's still conflict, where the principalities and powers are still setting the agenda. Don't be conformed to this, ultimately because we're of the age to come and not this age. So hence, in another place, the Apostle Paul calls this age the present evil age, Galatians 1.4. And our enemy, the devil, is even called the God of this age, 2 Corinthians 4.4. So this aeon, that is our present social world, is obviously a bad thing. It's something that the Apostle does not want us conformed to. He doesn't want us taking our patterns of thinking and the way that we view the, the reality from the world. Because it's a system organized against God and His will for the human race. It runs counter to everything that is good and just. Hence the question, James chapter 4, verse 4, Do you not know 
that friendship with the world is hostility toward God. It's an either-or proposition. God and the world, again, not creation, the world that he made, that he loves, but our social world run counter to one another, such that to be friends with the world, to be conformed to the world, is to be, or is rather, hostility with God. So how does this world, this age, squeeze us into its mold? How does it conform us to its pattern? It does so by taking hold of our minds. Its definitions and ideas become the lens through which we view reality. Now this takes us back to Romans 1, where this whole process begins. There the Apostle Paul says, although they knew God, speaking of the human race, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. He says, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So humanity, because it didn't honor God, because it didn't give thanks to God, became futile in mind and our hearts were darkened. Now, what's the result? Well, we start seeing ducks instead of rabbits. Humans look upon the world, that is, upon created things, corruptible man, birds, and four-footed animals, and crawling creatures, the apostle says, and we saw them as gods. Instead of seeing the creator's power and glory revealed in them, Paul says we worship them exchanging the truth of God for a lie. So God meant us to see one thing, namely a reflection of his glory in the created order, but we ended up seeing something else. We worshipped creation, and as a result, God was essentially excluded from our vision. They became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. So what then? Well, then we go about building civilization on the basis of this faulty thinking. We construct a social world of art, culture, ideology, politics, markets, and laws that at bottom does not acknowledge God, that does not honor Him or give thanks to Him. So we create this world for ourselves, and then the world in turn shapes us. And we're born into this world. And it forms the basic structure of our minds, and it becomes the lens through which reality is filtered. It's kind of like that uh, gorilla experiment that I mentioned earlier. This age gets us to focus our vision in such a way that the most obvious thing, God, the creator of heaven and earth, is excluded from our sight. He's there, as clear as day, but because our vision is messed up, we can't see him, the most obvious thing. So in other words, the deck is stacked against the truth. And this is what the Apostle Paul says. He begins this section of Romans 1, verse 18, by saying, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So the truth is bottled up. It's covered over. 
so that ducks instead of rabbits keep turning up. Now, it does this in many ways, but I just want to quickly highlight three. The first way that the world gets us to conform to its pattern is by naming things. Now, don't underestimate the power of a name and how it shapes our perception of reality. Now, in the scriptures, God is the original namer of things. He makes the light, and he calls it day. He makes the dark, and he calls it night. God has the authority to say what things are. He names them. But then he takes that authority and he delegates it to us. He delegates it to humanity. God calls the animals and he brings them before Adam to see, the scripture says, what he will call them, Genesis 2.19. So humanity has a role in naming things, that is, in determining what they are. But of course, that naming goes wrong. And more often than not, what we do is we misname things. So instead of calling it adultery, we call it love. Instead of calling it greed, we call it good business. And instead of sin, it's liberation or whatever. And so the name that we assign to particular deeds or actions or things fundamentally changes our perception of it. So if you can just rename it, it'll change the way people think about it. Think of the abortion debates, right? It's either uh, you're, you're pro-choice or anti-choice or whatever, for however they call it. But it's a battle of semantics. How are you going to name it and shape the perception for the people? And the second way the culture or the world does this is through ideas. Our social world fills us with ideas about reality. That is what's good and right. Conservatism, progress, self-expression, freedom, Marxism, capitalism, globalism, nationalism, these are all ideas that shape our perception of the world. And of course, the third thing is images. If I asked you, what is the good life? Right, what is your version of the good life? And you were to think about that, what comes to mind? Typically a picture. You see something, you and your family in this idyllic environment. Now, where does that picture come from? Who gave you that picture? Who supplied it to you? More often than not, that picture of the good life comes from the world. All these images and videos and so on and so forth that shape us and tell us this is what is good. So the point is, this age, the present social world shapes our minds. It determines what we see and what we cannot see. And then it provides us with the names and the definitions that it chooses. It's kind of like those algorithms on social media. A lot of people talk about this. The artificial intelligence algorithms, they analyze your engagement on social media. So the posts that you like, the videos that you watch, and basically everything that you do, and a lot more than that. They have access to basically everything on your phone. And then it determines the algorithm what interests you. It sort of try to it tries to find out like what you're, what you're into. And then what it does when it determines that is it feeds it to you endlessly. It just gives you more and more and more of what it thinks you want. And so what it does is it creates a feedback loop. 
and it narrows your view of reality because it just keeps giving you more and more of the same thing. So your vision gets more and more narrow. It finds this point, and it can't escape from that. Now, again, that can be harmless if you're using social media or TikTok for cooking recipes or sports highlights, but it's quite dangerous if you use it for more ideological purposes. There's a study that was done at MIT that correlates heavy use of social media with a measurable loss of empathy. So meaning the more that you're kind of fed this narrow vision of reality, the harder you find it to stand in another person's shoes, to understand where they're coming from or what they're saying. It narrows our vision of reality. So the point is, it's not about algorithms, but about our world. It's very similar to that. It just feeds us this picture of things, and then it blocks out everything else. It filters reality for us and conforms us to its agenda. And here's, here's the result, is that our view of reality is always the wrong one. It's biased against the Lord. It's biased against the truth. It's biased against the way he says things are. And then based on that wrong view of things, we're going to come to wrong conclusions. We're going to make wrong choices. Now, for instance, Tom and Greg are both retired police officers and both did time as undercover detectives. And because of that, their view of reality has been trained in a very specific way that mine and yours has not. They can see things, body language, tone of voice, gestures, and I'm just guessing at this point. I don't know what they can see, but those things are totally lost on us. And it enables them to see the situation, not as it appears, right, where we might be misguided or we might be confused about a situation. It enables them to see it not as it appears, but for what it really is. And where we would go into that situation just totally naive, and we'd make a bad decision, they would make a wise decision. Because their vision enables them to see things that we can't. Or consider Mike and Kurt, men of science and engineers. An equation that to us looks like gibberish, a mass of numbers and letters and symbols, is beautiful to them. I see nonsense. I, I don't know what I'm looking at. But they see, and they can tell me, that's how you put a rocket into the air. Their vision is trained in a different way, and therefore they can get something out of reality that I just can't. Or take Nicole, who is a licensed therapist trained in family systems theory, where you and I would be tempted to write off a destructive and rebellious teenager as a hopeless cause. She can see a whole world behind his actions a family that has shaped him, and, and she knows how then to treat it and what measures that can be taken to help him. Now, the same applies morally and spiritually. When it comes to seeing things as they are, not according to our present evil age, but according to true wisdom and spiritual discernment, we're all ignorant there's a whole dimension of reality that's just systematically excluded from our vision. Now, again, it's there. It's obvious as anything else, but we just can't 
see it. And because our vision is warped and narrowed, it leads us in all the wrong directions. We're always coming to faulty conclusions. We think this is what's happening, or this is how to read the situation, or this is what I should do, but it's wrong. Because our vision is wrong, we keep bumping into unseen objects, making terrible choices and going directions we shouldn't, or taking destructive roads. This vision shapes everything. It's sort of before, it's, well, consciousness itself, but that's the problem. We're conformed to this world. That's the problem. So what's the solution? Well, the answer is revelation. Not the book at the end of the Bible, but revelation as in God and his truth have to be revealed to us. They have to be made known to us. Now, because we're fallen creatures, we just we don't have independent access to that. It's hidden from our eyes. It's blocked from our view. And if we're ever to see things the way they are, God has to break through. In other words, as the apostle says, we have to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. God has to send his word to us. And it has to break in upon our self-enclosed minds. And then it has to teach us how to see things differently. The word of God comes to us and it changes our perception. And it opens us to a new dimension of reality. So whereas before our vision was so narrow and our lives were based on something so small, now the picture has been burst wide open and there's so much more to go on. Now fundamentally, that is what worship is all about. It says to us, as we come in Monday through Saturday, having heard all these messages and images and ideas and namings of the world, and it comes to us and says, your perspective is all wrong. You're not seeing things right. And it says, stand here from a new point of view and see things again. Look again. So it recalibrates our vision and it teaches us to see things that are, that, as they are. Where we're looking at reality and we always were seeing ducks before, after worship we come back and we see rabbits. And it does this by putting God at the center of our vision. And then he sends us out into the world to live differently. Not conformed to this age, but transformed by the renewing of our mind. Now, we mentioned him last week, but the prime example here is Asaph from our reading this morning. What was Asaph's problem? The same one that we've been going on about. Asaph had a faulty and narrow vision of reality. Again, the passage is Psalm 73, and it opens with Asaph saying, verses 2 and 3, As for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Poor Asaph was looking at things in the wrong way. He saw the prosperity of the wicked, and he misinterpreted it. And he became envious of them. He saw them, and he seen that they do as they please. 
He saw that nothing troubles them, and their lives are happy and good and all this other stuff, and that no one can resist them. And he thought, if the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper, what's the point? Asaph didn't see their coming judgment. He didn't see any of that. The only thing he saw was the wicked getting away scot-free. No issues, no problems, and their happy life. And it had him on the brink of apostasy. That is, on the brink of turning away altogether. Verse 13, In vain I have kept my heart pure, he says, and washed my hands in innocence. Asaph's not seeing things right. Well, what then? Asaph goes to the place of worship, and there everything changed. He says, verses 16 and 17, When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. Again, in my sight. And he says, until I came into the sanctuary of God. Asaph's darkened vision was illuminated when he came to the sanctuary. He came to the place of worship where God's presence rested. He says, looking back, verse 22, I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. He didn't see things, like, like an animal, right? Think of how much of more of reality we see and understand than an animal. He says, Lord, I was looking at the situation. I just couldn't see it right. I couldn't get the picture. But then the truth of God is brought to him, and Asaph is restored to his full humanity. His reason is returned to him. And again, that's the point of worship. To transform us from beasts with a faulty vision of reality, or at least a narrow vision of reality, to men and women who see the whole picture. Now, the first way our church gathering does this is by expanding our vision. So Asaph continues, backtrack a bit here. He says, until I came into the sanctuary of God, he says, then I perceived their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. How they are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. So we said Asaph's vision was restored when he came into God's presence. But specifically how? What new thing did Asaph perceive in the sanctuary? Well, he says, Then I perceived their end. That was what was missing from the picture. Prior to entering the sanctuary, his vision was shrunken temporally. That is, in relation to time. He could not see Asaph could beyond the present moment. The judgment to come, the resurrection of the dead, the inheritance of the saints, none of these factored into his thinking. All that he could see was what was right before his eyes. And therefore, his reading of the situation was distorted. According to the weakness of his vision, the wicked and the oppressors of the world seemed unassailable. No one could stand against them. Verse 9, he says, They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue parades through the earth. 
Asaph's situation was hopeless, and his only thought was to, to join them. But when he entered the sanctuary of God, when he perceived their end, then the wicked who formerly seemed immortal and unquestionable are proven to be like a dream. They're destroyed in a moment, he says. They're swept away by sudden terrors because Asaph's vision is now expanded. He looks upon the same situation, the same circumstance, and he sees it differently. Now, how does this relate to worship? It relates to worship because worship tells us, one, the true story, and it tells us the whole story. Worship helps us to see the end like Asaph. And our social world, which is inherently secular and materialistic, we're fed countless stories about the world, about the way things are. And little by little, our vision is narrowed, it's shrunken, it's reduced. And we can no longer see things as they are. Well, in worship, we come to hear the true story about who God is and what he's up to in the world through Jesus and the Spirit. I was thinking about this as the scripture was read this morning. Just think about how countercultural the narrative of Genesis is. It created man and woman in, God created man and woman in his own image. That the world is not an accident. That there's a purpose. That God has blessed and put us on this planet to serve and to love him. That's a totally different story than what you hear elsewhere. Or think about the the resurrection of Jesus and the commission of the church to go make disciples. How does that differ from what the world tells us we should pursue and so on and so forth? So we hear God's story through the reading of the word, through the songs that we sing, through the preaching of the word, through our fellowship with one another, and it helps us to interpret what we see. And it does so by telling us the beginning, how all this started, and where we're going, the end. And that helps us to get a sense of what we should do in the middle. So just for a moment, let's imagine that the scriptures um, are a pair of glasses. And God gives us these glasses as a gift. And instead of wearing the glasses, we set them on the table. I need to put these back on because I cannot see. He said, we set them on the table, and then instead of wearing them, we dissect them, and we learn everything we can about them. We become experts in glasses. We know everything we need to know. But is that what the glasses are for? No. They're for wearing. They're for seeing. So the scriptures aren't for us to look at, but they're for us to look through. They shape the world for us. They provide us with the grid and framework for which to view reality. They're glasses. So that when we see the world and our lives through the scriptures, then we're seeing correctly. That's what worship's all about. It helps us to see ourselves, not according to the world story that's so deeply ingrained into our minds, but the true story. The scriptures re-narrate the world and enables us to see things not as a cosmic accident, but as God's good creation. Not as a meaningless joke, but something charged with meaning. And certainly not a godless place, but the theater of God's glory in Christ. 
Now, the second thing that worship does is it recalibrates our desires. When Asaph's narrow vision was burst open and expanded to eternal horizons, his desires, his heart, subsequently changed. Before, his eyes were on the prosperity of the wicked. He envied them, the, key, the, 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 the ease and comfort, the allure and romance, the luxury and affluence of their lives. In the sanctuary, however, things are changed. What seemed so desirable before, what so, seemed so enchanting before, has lost its shine. Asaph's enlarged vision puts things in their proper place. These are passing pleasures. They're temporal goods. They're fading ornamentation. Instead, he says, look at this conclusion. Besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Asaph's vision was recalibrated, and thus his desires were recalibrated as well. One transformation led to another. His greater depth of insight and his newfound clarity essentially forbid him from longing after worldly pleasures because now he sees them for what, he's, what they are. He's not deceived anymore. So his heart follows his vision. His love follows his knowledge. And now he only desires one thing, the Lord, his portion in life and in death. And again, that's what worship does for us. It transforms us from beasts with our desires set on the base things of the world into humans with our desire set on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And it all happens because this renewed vision, the true knowledge of God and of the world helps us, keeps us, keeps things in their proper place. And we never elevate now the creature above the creator because we can see the whole picture. And lastly, building on these two things, the third thing that worship does is it enables us to live in a new way. Before entering the sanctuary, our vision was populated with ducks, and we lived based on that. But now our vision has changed, and we see rabbits, and we see a new way of living. And just so Asaph's vision was enlarged, stretched out to eternal horizons, and now it opened up new pathways for his life. His heart and his mind are no longer constrained by the temporal, by the immediate, by the foreground. His actions are no longer bound to the present, but now a different point, the end, shapes his conduct and action. Well, how so? Well, because he perceives the end, specifically the end of the wicked, he is no longer pierced with envy and weighed down by the temptation to join them. Asaph's playing the long game now. And it bolsters him with the endurance to live for something more than the passing pleasures of sin. He's glad to bear the reproach of the righteous because he knows the reward that awaits him. You lead me by my hand and afterward will receive me into glory. I've heard it said that a Christian is someone whose life does not make sense unless Jesus has risen from the dead. A Christian is someone whose life doesn't make sense unless Jesus has risen from the dead. 
And what worship is designed to do is to raise our eyes toward that end. The resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection to come and to help us to live for it in a way that simply doesn't make sense to those whose vision is conformed to this world. But because our minds are renewed according to the truth of God, because we're playing the long game, we live differently. We live in a whole different way. So we come into the sanctuary of God with our vision all messed up and wrong, and we hear the truth, and it refreshes our broken minds. It teaches us to see things rightly, then it sends us back out into the world to look at our lives and our work, our family and our friends, the circumstances that befall us, the trouble that we find ourselves in, in a whole new way. Not narrow, confined to this world, but transformed. It's only fitting then that we turn our mind toward that end now. In the Lord's Supper, we look back to Jesus' death and resurrection, but we also look forward. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, the Apostle Paul says, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So let's cast our eyes toward that end and let it transform our lives. So I invite you forward now to come receive the elements, and I'll, rec- I'll lead us in, in just one moment.